Want to get your hands on some boxes and line socks? Very, very easy to do. Tell us a little about yourself and our survey, and we'll send you a pair for free. Just go to custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. You won't regret it. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. John Ramsey, what say Welcome you? Welcome to our award-winning podcast, Boxes <laughs> and Lines. I'm not sure what award we got, but maybe after yeah. this one, we'll get some awards. So today, I wanted to <laughs> welcome a special guest. We're doing this podcast in conjunction with National STA. It's the Security Traders Association. Obviously, due to COVID, it was a virtual event. And our guest from Credit Suisse today is Doug Clark. And at that event, he interviewed Brett Redfern. Many of you who listen to this podcast will know he's the head of trading and markets at the SEC. And during this podcast, we'll talk a little bit about Doug's interview of Brett. But first, I just want to introduce Doug. He's currently at Credit Suisse. Many of us and you out there in the industry will know him for his years at ITG. And I credit him for his market structure prowess in Canada, probably the US as well. But uh, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thanks, Ron, and glad to be here. John, what, 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 what questions do you have for Doug? <laughs> it's, it sounds like you're drawing a blank there, Ronan. I mean, um, no, no, you know, you, you always complain that I ask all the questions. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it now. It's our 20 something podcast. John's going to ask a question for him. <laughs> Let's go. It actually was a really good uh, interview, I have to say, uh, with Brett. Covered a lot of interesting topics. Should we explain what trading and markets is? Trading and markets is really running the all of the trading regulation around markets in all kinds of securities. It's not just equities. It's uh, in some cases derivatives. Some of the derivatives work is done at the CFTC, but he talked about the swap market and they're responsible for swaps that are on stocks, whereas the CFTC is responsible for swaps on anything else. He's got the fixed income markets. He's got the cryptocurrencies. He's got the, the, uh, the equity side plus all the investor protection uh, that comes with that. So he's got a very full plate. And I think that what happens to a lot of people coming into that role is depending on whether you come from a capital formation side, you're an investment banker or an investment banking lawyer, or you are on the trading side, you kind of come in with a view of trading in markets is what I've dealt with in the past. And then yeah. you realize I've dealt with 10% of this mammoth organization and I've got a you know, I don't understand the other 90% nearly as well as I should. I got a, a learning curve that's massive. Yeah, yeah. well, it's a, it's I, he a, has my a... sympathy. I didn't understand it that well when I was there, and I uh, now I understand <laughs> it even less. But, Jesus, um, you know you're being recorded as you say that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to edit that out, don't Okay, worry. fair enough. Um, what, I mean, one thing I'm curious to get your sense of is, what do you think is going to happen when Brett leaves? Or I guess to put it a different way, I, I mean, we, we all know that the regime at the SEC is going to turn over at some point in the not too distant future and regardless of what happens in the election. And then there's sort of, I think, speculation about what's going to happen to the agenda in terms of things like market data and exchange pricing and um, of services. Do, what, what are your thoughts about whether that's how much that's going to change or if it's going to change? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think that one of the interesting things we've seen Brett and the team do is really 
stack the uh, the staff of, of in recent months with some fantastic people. And, and John, you sat in the chair on an interim basis, so you know the David Shulmans and the the Richard Hollers and whatnot. They've got some fantastic lawyers who really understand markets, but they've brought in guys like Dimitri Bolkin and Manisha Kimmel and others. And these are people that I don't believe are going to disappear in the short term. Brett certainly hasn't said publicly that he's going to to disappear anytime soon. But as you know better than I do, typically an election ends the current regime and the chair leaves and quite often the director of trading markets. He's been there for three years. It's been a long three years. 2020 has been a long three years on its own for everybody. And, and I think he's had a tough time. But the, the first question I asked him was kind of about what he had accomplished in the three years. And when you looked at that answer, he was really talking about mostly things like Reg BI and some of the right. securities, Section 7 of the, the Dodd-Frank, which were things that he inherited. And I think part of the messaging there, not to yeah, put inherited from me, mouth. and I obviously did such an inadequate job because <laughs> I didn't complete it when I was there. So there I, I, didn't, I didn't say it. Our guest is making fun of you today. This is Yeah, great. all right. Yeah, Go ahead, Doug. Thinking, I could tell from your facial expression. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think you actually inherited it from the director before you who may have I inherited it from the did. Oh, don't kiss his ass. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think without putting words into Brett's mouth, when he talked about, you know, getting these things over the, the finish line, it really sort of sent the message that a lot of things don't get finished in a three or four year term. And so he can't expect to wrap a bow around all the data work. What he wants to do, and he talked a lot about what he's done in the market data space, was he wanted to just have the framework there, fully explain why he was doing what he was doing, what the vision was. He knows he's going to have to hand it off. And then we'll see, depending on who wins the election and you know, haven't heard a lot of rumblings around who's likely to fill that role. And, you know, I think last time it took almost a full year to, to get somebody into this, into the seat. So it's kind of anybody's guess, but I think he's done a really good job of documenting what he's done. He's spoken at SIFMA and NOIP and STA multiple times. The entire industry knows what his vision is and what he's driving at whether the new person decides to do a full 180 or wants to take, you know, cherry pick parts of it, at least nobody's going to walk in and confuse going, what was he up to? What was he trying to get to? It's, it's fully documented, kind of like walking into somebody else's code. At least you, you know what they were aiming for, even if you decide not to use it. Yeah. yeah and I, I like, I think what I would say with uh, the appointment of um, Brett, when, when it was made, we were all pretty excited because like, like you said at the beginning, Doug, there are people like Shilman and Holly who've been there for a long time. Fantastic guys. Uh, we interact with them as well. And we like them very much. We respect yes, them. Yes, we, we do. Terrific public we would servants. never say anything yeah. bad about mm -hmm. you, Bob. Yep. What we thought was great with Brett is he was plucked right from the sell side. So he came in as an industry practitioner. If you know Brett, obviously, as we all do here, he's not afraid to speak either, which is, which is a great thing. But to, to, to your statement earlier, like patting some of the staff before he leaves, having people like Dimitri there, I think that's a great thing, right? Because you're, you're putting practitioners in the seat as well as the professionals from the regulatory side, like the, the Hollies and Shulman and sorry. Who yeah, else and I want to give a, a shout out to Peggy Sullivan too, who, he, yep. uh, who knows the market uh, data space cold yep. um, from practical experience. So that was a great ad. Yeah, they've certainly gotten much more progressive and intelligent and nice since John Ramsey was acting. Head, but... <laughs> yeah, he never misses an opportunity for some little petty little dig. That's okay. That's okay. The, Go ahead. The, the interesting, you know, kind of story about Brett is in September of 2017, 
Brett was speaking at the SDA. He was chairing a fireside chat with Frank Troyes, who at the time was uh, uh, CEO of ITG. I should know that. And with Dan Keegan, who was the um, global co-head of equities at Citi. And Brett claims at the time he was not in contact with the SEC, and I have no reason to doubt that. <laughs> they got up on stage and he was talking about the regulatory space and they divided the world into two sets of, of problems. Those that we all agree are problems but can't agree on the solution. And that was issues coming out of say the flash crash. So market-wide circuit breakers, limit up, limit down. We all know we have to do something. We may just disagree slightly on the tactics. And then the more contentious issues like market data where parts of the infrastructure, parts of the environment will say, there's no problem here, let's just keep the status quo and others are pushing hard for a change. And he kind of was talking about how different regimes had looked at it and some will look at that and say, hey, let's take the low hanging fruit, let's get some wins. If we take on the contentious stuff, we're gonna get so tied up, we're not gonna be able to get anything done even on the easy wins. And it was interesting because as, as he's told me the story, it was a week or two later, he got contacted by the SEC. He met with Jay Clayton and his announcement was maybe six weeks after that STA. And he walked in and thought, I'm gonna try some of these contentious issues. It may prevent me from getting some of the low hanging fruit taken care of, but I'm gonna try and, and move the, the needle there. The real thing to see with the next person in the, in the seat is, are they going to wanna take on the ugly issues that result in fights and delays and, you know, hurt your ability to work with the industry as a whole because you kind of divide the industry or are they going to try and, you know, bring the industry back together? There aren't as many issues, I don't think, and I'd, I'd like to hear John's view on this. When you come out of the financial crisis, there were a lot of issues that required regulatory reform. Here we've had market volatility and, and a lot has gone on, but it hasn't been due to any behavior at the bank. So there's not necessary regulatory change that has to happen that's going to cause the, the problems you had in say 2009, 2010. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think on the issues that really have, the, the things that have been controversial around exchange services and pricing for exchange services, market data in particular. I mean, when you say that there's a divide in the industry, from my perspective, it's basically it's the exchanges on one side, everybody else on the other, uh, right? I mean, I don't think there are too many people who are, are not benefiting directly from the sale of proprietary data who, you know, who don't have a concern about those things. And it feels to me like the SEC has uh, charted a pretty clear, consistent principle course on those issues in the last couple of years that they're probably not going to do a 180 on. It seems to me that, uh, you know, regardless of who comes in, they're going to continue, but likely to continue to um, look at those fee filings um, very carefully, require, you know, some heightened level of justification for them. That'd be my guess. And if I, if I could back up just because there are people who listen to this podcast, God bless them, that are not necessarily in the industry. Really? The big, the big, yeah, believe it or not. Um, mm. I don't even understand what you guys are saying. I, I, I don't I know how they imagine. understand what the fuck you guys are on about. But <laughs> in, any, in any case, uh, market data is a fee that the exchanges uh, charge the industry, and it really sort of kicked off. It's an argument. Like, no one likes to be charged for anything, right? But uh, the argument really kicked off in October of 2018 when the SEC held a two-day market data roundtable. And I believe it was six or seven panels over those two days. And basically, it became 
a semi-public slap fight between the exchanges charging for market data and the brokers, many different brokers represented on how expensive those fees are and how they are approved by the regulators. So when Doug and John are talking about the approval and what uh, Brett and trading and markets at the SEC have put into place, I think what they've set out is a plan for a structure that you sort of have to prove why you're, you know, up, why you're charging more for a particular service. And there has to be some relevance to the fee that you're charging. So it's more of like a microscope on actually the fees for market data that the exchanges charge. God, I'm fucking good. Okay, now. <laughs> oh my God. With that little self-congratulatory note. Th thank uh, you, everyone. Thank you. You can yeah. vote mm -hmm. at foxesandlines.com. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Foxes and Lions. John or Ronan, or maybe Doug. Doug will probably mm -hmm. win, so don't do that. Anyway, John. I think, Ronan, are you, are you right now auditioning to be the next director of trading and markets? Is that what you're doing? Uh, yeah, we're, we're yeah. working on it. They, 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 they wouldn't want to deal with me. They're yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> no one would want me in that role. They can't deal with his fucking mouth. His yeah. Fucking, yeah, sorry. Go easy, go easy, Ramsey. Yeah, okay, all right. We can all, we can edit it out. That's true, that's true. Doug, I'm just curious from that conversation. As I said, I thought it was a really good conversation with Brett. Um, was there anything that stuck out for you or anything that he said that you that either surprised you or, or, or you thought was particularly noteworthy? Uh, there, there weren't any surprises just because when you do an event, as you would know, with with the director of trading and markets, there's a lot of pre-call and a lot of, of work. So you kind of go in knowing what you're going to get. Uh, we spent 20 of the 30 minutes really talking about the the market data regime. And he was just kept going back to the point that, you know, the SEC needs to ensure that fees are fair and reasonable. They're not discriminatory and that they've done the work, you know, historically, I have to be careful how I word this, but I think historically at times there have been applications filed where the applicant has said these fees are reasonable because it's a competitive market, so they must be reasonable. Yeah. And that's maybe accepted point blank and it hasn't been interrogated. And he was, you know, talking about the courts have come back to the SEC now. There's one uh, decision in particular, uh, Sesquihana decision, as they call it, around OCC financing, the option clearing corp financing where they filed for a fee. They said it's a competitive market. Nobody interrogated that. And the courts came back and said, A, we don't believe this is a, a competitive market. And B, we don't think that the commission has done their job in ensuring that these statements are real. So he really drove that point home pretty hard. And I think that's been a point of contention for years is you you get the exchanges saying, hey, by platform theory, for example, and that's the economic theory they use, uh, it must be competitive. Platform theory, before Ronan feels he has to explain what I'm talking about, platform yeah. theory oh, says ouch. that if- We don't, we don't if, want we don't want another one of those, please. No, if, please, if, go ahead. Platform theory says that if you run a business, and, and the example that, that's been used by NASDAQ is if you run a gym and your memberships are overpriced, but your classes are cheaper than others, so maybe you charge higher for membership, but you charge nothing for the spin class and aerobics, you're competing with another gym that charges slightly lower membership, but they charge per class fees, you'll win business based on your total your total cost of, of use. And that you know, is debatable because some of the fees for an exchange, you have to pay regardless of how much you use them. So market data being the classic example, I need to know what prices are on each of the exchange, even if I'm sending my orders to another market, because I want to make sure I'm not trading through, I want to see the volume, I need that in real time. So it's not a perfect No, it's, theory. I mean, yeah, I mean, the problem is, 
Uh, hello, uh, stock exchanges are nothing like a fucking gym, as, uh, as yeah, I would say. That's a good point, uh, John. Mean, that's a good point. Yeah. Now, does everyone out there know what a gym is? Because no, <laughs> <laughs> I sure as fuck don't ever since I started working at IX. It's been a long time for me, I can tell you that. Um, back, in, back in 2019, people used to go outside. They used to get together with one another. They would mingle at places called bars and restaurants and gyms. And they would lift things repeatedly. Uh, <laughs> Classic. Uh, oh, for the days. Oh, for the days. Um, well, I know one of the one of the things you talked to him about the transaction tax uh, as well, um, Doug. And I, I know uh, you guys are also part of a, a coalition that we are part of uh, in trying to challenge this effort by New Jersey in particular to impose a financial transaction tax. It was John, interesting. Can I, was, can I stop you there and ask yeah. you to explain a little more to the layman? What Absolutely. The well, maybe Doug would like about. to explain uh, be, explain well, what it is they're trying to do. He does a better job than you, so go for well, it. Well, okay, fine. That's why, Doug, what the hell is the FTT? So financial transaction tax, and you have these in, in many markets around the world, the UK, Italy, France. Effectively, every time you do a transaction, somebody pays a tax to the government. It may be per share. It may be per trade. It may only be on one side of the trade. It may be on both. There can be exemptions, but you think about it, if every time you bought something from Amazon, the government was able to collect a new tax over and above all the existing taxes of 50 cents, what's going to happen to the price of everything on Amazon? It's going to go up by something like 50 cents. So yep. when you start charging taxes on transactions, it looks really good to Main Street because it's the, the Wall Street millionaires who look like they're being taxed. Clearly, trading has done very well during 2020. The various state and federal budgets are not doing well. They are trying to pay for higher unemployed uh, participants, for more use of food banks, and all these, you know, the infrastructure costs of running. And they're looking for somewhere to get that money. They look at trading. They say, boy, they're having a record year. Why don't we tax this? Unfortunately, what we find when we look at markets that introduce transaction taxes is the market liquidity disappears. And so like that Amazon example where the cost of widget goes up by 50 cents, if you introduce a transaction tax that is a portion of a penny, the market makers just widen out their spread by a portion of a penny and the, the tax burden is is worn by the end investor, be it a pension plan or a 401k holder. And so what we're really trying to do is, is to educate the legislators in New Jersey. We appreciate the, the situation in, they're in. They have a multiple billion dollar deficit coming at them. No fault of their own. Like everybody else, they didn't see the, the pandemic coming. They certainly didn't create it. They you know, seemingly reacted pretty well compared to, to some other governments around the world. And yet they have this deficit all of the transactions in the US equity market and a lot of the transactions in the derivative market happen to take place on computer servers that are located in New Jersey. And that's just an oddity. There are data centers that are close to New York. They are in geographies that are good uh, to avoid flooding, cheap electricity. And so years ago, the data centers kind of converged into the New Jersey area in 2020 government of New Jersey looks up, looks at this, this deficit and says, hey, where can we raise some money? By the way, billions of, of shares trade a day on servers in New Jersey. What if we charge a small fraction of a penny to every one of those shares? We'll raise a few hundred million dollars and that'll help us bail it out. 
great if it was, you know, the banks and the market makers that were going to end up paying for it. Uh, not necessarily great. I'm sure my bosses <laughs> at a bank won't say great, but at least it would be the the Wall Street that was paying for it. But it actually 90% of the tax ends up going back to the end investor, Mr. and Mrs. 401k, as, as Jay Clayton at the SEC likes to call him. And that's not good for markets overall. So, yeah. hey, you know, that's I was, that's I was going to say, thanks, Doug. Uh, I was going to say in context, just for those listening, obviously outside the industry, sometimes they do think it's the Wall Street fat cats. And I'm a New Jersey resident. I, I, I get it. An exchange, for the most part, makes, you know, single digit one hundredths of a penny on every trade. So it's a very, very small fee that the exchanges are charging. Obviously, it's a per share, per share, I meant. And if there's a fee levied on that as a tax, that fee is going to roll downhill. And exactly what Doug is saying, it rolls downhill to the institutional and individual investor, which is why this is, this is not a case of Wall Street not wanting to pay additional taxes. It's more of let's come to the table and talk about something semi-rational. Go, John. It, it really has, it does have unintended effects. The other point that I think the members of the coalition are making is that this business is very portable too. And that uh, if, if the cost of doing business increases in New Jersey, the exchanges and other folks can move to another location. And so it ends up not being very effective as a revenue raising measure either, because then you just lose, you know, you lose the business and it moves someplace else. What, what I thought was interesting was that uh, Brett clearly didn't, this is somewhat political issue, and so he didn't want to get very much into it, but, but he, he was fairly expressive about his own personal thoughts. Yeah, as, as the director of trading and markets at the SEC, you certainly don't want to be telling the New Jersey government or any government how to run your budget, not his yeah. job. And he's trying to function with all the politics of the, the world. He, he can't be seen as Republican or Democrat. He's got to be seen as independent. So when he starts telling a blue state or a red state how to handle their economy, he's, uh, he's going to have some problems and, and he already has you know, enough, uh, a hard enough job. He doesn't need to make it harder for himself. But when you talk about that portability, one of the things that we've seen as a result is New Jersey's working on this bill. The big exchanges, NYSE and NASDAQ are already testing out facilities in Illinois. There are newspaper articles about possibly opening data centers in Texas. And what Brett said was, it would be alarming to him if you saw New York Stock Exchange in Illinois, NASDAQ in Texas, and CBOE in Kansas City, IEX in New York. You Ireland. want the, We're going to Ireland. Ireland. You're going to yeah. Ireland? Yeah, there Ireland. You go. Yeah. yeah, Ronan actually threatened to move out of New Jersey if they imposed the tax there, uh, which would reduce their tax. Yeah, it's not much of a threat, though, right? No. <laughs> yeah. I, my wife's from New Jersey. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Doug. Uh, uh, Back to you. So, yeah, so I, you, I apologize you, on behalf of John. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you move the data centers to all these locations, you know, a, a big part of, of the IAX story is how they understand the geography of the, the three main New Jersey data centers. And they have order types that are, are built and routers that are built to, to help you navigate that. Those are based on, you know, latencies between the data centers that measure in the sort of 85 to 320 microsecond level. If you look at Chicago to New Jersey, you're now talking four milliseconds. Uh, so uh, tenfold or what you're talking 
for within New Jersey, you're talking nine milliseconds if you're going by fiber, four milliseconds by microwave. So the games that can be played within the market between the various data centers, what we in the industry call latency arbitrage, that we've all worked very hard to get rid of in the last several years since uh, Michael Lewis wrote Flash Boys, those become even greater challenges and all the work that we've done to figure out the three main server rooms, suddenly we have to refigure it out and all the brokers and all the quant firms basically are going to have an opportunity cost that they have to re-engineer all of their routing and their algorithms to deal with this new geography. Now, maybe you all end up in one data center in Virginia or Texas and you're all, you know, nanoseconds away from each other and, and it actually is better and you could end up in a data center that's run on wind power and is environmentally cleaner and you know that would be the panacea but that's unlikely to happen and you could have yeah. this interim result where data centers are scattered all over and everybody is trying to adjust on the fly and probably not doing a phenomenal job at it. What would be funny is uh, Selma Hayek could actually run her HFT firm out of Kansas like that nutty movie, The Hummingbird Project. Uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> they knew something. They see. It wasn't as crazy as we all thought. <laughs> yeah. So stay tuned. Financial transaction tax is going to be a hot one in the coming months. Now, Doug, I'm interested in getting, I'm interested in getting your thoughts about this. So <laughs> and, and, as some folks may be aware, the percentage of trading that is displayed that happens on exchange where you have displayed prices has been on a long-term downtrend um, for some period of time. That's kind of accentuated been uh, during the sort of COVID period and after. Um, and so there's more and more trading that happens away on these um, facilities called the TRF or trade reporting facilities, where you know that trades are happen have happened, but you really don't know where the trading has happened. And so uh, Brett didn't talk that much about this, but I think Commissioner Royceman did during his remarks um, about whether people ought to have more information about where trading is happening so they know where liquidity is available. And I'd just be curious to see if you have any thoughts about that. Yes. The, the conversation that I have had most often with the institutional investor, the buy side trader this year has been around retail trading and what we call accessible flow. So in the U.S. market, retail firms will quite often have a bilateral arrangement with what we call a wholesaler for their smaller trades. And so they will send an order to buy 3,000 shares of General Electric at the market to one of these wholesalers. The wholesalers will fill the order for them at slightly better than the prevailing market, the, the best bid and offer. I give them a little bit of price improvement and the trade is done and there's some certainty in the execution in that there's an agreement between the two firms, the retail platform and the wholesaler around how much they can execute automatically in given names, depending if they're in a given index. So retail firm like Schwab will send an order to a wholesaler like Citadel, 3000 shares of General Electric, they get filled instantly. Citadel will then print that trade to what's called the trade reporting facility or the TRF and they can either own that risk or they can go back out to market and maybe they go to IEX and instantly trade 3,000 shares and get off of the risk. In a market that's not very volatile, in a name that's very liquid, they will most likely wear the risk and they're hoping that within a few seconds or minutes, they're gonna have somebody selling them GE and they've managed to buy it near the bid, sell it near the offer and they keep the difference. 
that's a tremendous business. It has seen a massive uptick since April of this year as the retail investor has come back to the market in a way we really have never seen since at least 1999, 2000. Where that's confused institutional investors is that TRF also contains other trades that are accessible, mainly dark pools. And dark pools are facilities that are run either by brokers or independent firms where you're trading stocks, but it's not, there's no lit quote. So unlike IEX, where I know that there are buyers of stock at 10 cents on a dark pool, I don't know if there's any buyers or sellers. I send an order, I either get filled or I don't. Oftentimes I'll get filled at the midpoint of the best quote in the market. And that's why I try and go there for price improvement. I also don't have the, the transparency around my trade, which sometimes helps me and sometimes hurts me in that, that people can be watching for a footprint and can trade against me. So the, the institutional traders this year are looking at the TRF. It's expanded from sort of 30% of the market up to 45 on a given day. Today, I saw it even as high as 46, 47%. And they don't know how much of that is this retail flow that they can't get in the way of, they can't transact with, and how much of it is happening in dark pools that they can transact with. So they have a portfolio manager who used to be standing over their shoulder, is now on Zoom looking at them over their shoulder saying, hey, the stock's traded 3 million shares today. How come we haven't been able to buy half a million shares? And in a name that is very retail in nature on a given day because some blog has out mentioned it or they've got some hot news, you know, maybe they've, they've, they're one of the COVID uh, vaccine firms and they've just had news on a trial and retail gets really excitable, hot to buy their stock. Yeah, they get excitable is, is the word I can get through. And, and so in, in certain names, some days retail, while they're on average, call it 25% of the market, they might be 60, 70% of the market. We saw that with Hertz earlier in the year when they were going through some of their issues. Yep. They were 70, 80% of the market. As an institutional trader, you're looking at 10 million shares traded, but there's really only 2 million shares as institutional. So what Commissioner Roisman mentioned at the SDA, and, and this is a, an idea that's been going around in industry for two or three weeks, is let's take this TRF, this printing facility, and let's mark trades as these trades happened on an ATS, a dark pool, and therefore they're accessible. And these trades happened OTC, which is a few things, but for the most part, it's these retail trades that aren't accessible. And thus in real time, a buy side trader can look at the tape and say 4 million shares traded, but it looks like 1 million was retail. So I only want to concern myself with 3 million shares. They can change their algorithms. Quite often algorithms will say, don't be more than X percent of the volume. Don't be more than 10%. They can change it to don't be more than 10% of the accessible flow. And when they do their analytics afterwards to see how their trading went, they can look at just the flow they could have interacted with to see how they performed. It's a real simple fix. Nobody gets harmed in the process. The institutional traders a little better informed in real time. The portfolio manager understands the makeup of the flow. I think it's a tremendous idea. And it's one of these tremendous ideas that in regulatory terms could be done quickly, which is say weeks and months, not years. And it's not going to harm anybody. So I, I'm a big fan of the idea. I, I think it makes a lot of sense too. And I guess, I mean, you could go even one step further and you, you could say that there should be more timely disclosure, maybe not real time, but more timely disclosure of 
where trades are actually happening, um, which ATS they're happening in or which market center they're happening in. You get disclosure through FINRA, uh, but that's like on a two-way, two-week delayed basis or four-week delayed basis, which is kind of a long way to, a, a long time to wait if you're trying to get more information about where trading is actually happening. Yeah, in, in other markets, I'm sitting up in Canada in the Canadian market, the dark pools all come to the tape and you know exactly where a trade happened. So a trade happened on match now. Yep. When IEX first opened because you were a dark pool, you traded to the TRF. And I remember when you guys were going live as a lit exchange, there were some brokers out there saying, oh, that's going to harm their their dark activity because all of a sudden everybody will know when it's their trade and people won't want to trade there because of the information leakage. It didn't harm your dark market share. Right. If anything, that's grown over time. So, the, you know, there is some argument for attributing every venue by venue, but certainly speeding it up probably isn't harm. But this, this simple step is non-contentious to go back to, you know, the way Brett looked at it. What's the low hanging fruit? The low hanging fruit is let's make this one change I haven't heard anybody that's had an argument against it yet. So let's get this done and, uh, you know, we can take this as a quick win. Yeah, it's a, no, it's a no-brainer. John, would you ask a fucking question? Pardon me? Oh, sorry. If you've listened to any of our uh, podcasts, Doug, and maybe even if you haven't, you know that we always like to ask people what their favorite Wall Street movie is. And now that I've made fun of the Hummingbird Project, it better not be that. Yeah. It, it's, it, <laughs> I, I haven't actually seen the Hummingbird Project yet. I have a couple. I My two sons are 11 and 13, and I showed them Trading Places for the first time two weeks ago. Oh, uh-huh. I, I love that film. My 11-year-old then repeated some of it to my wife, and now it's my least favorite film because I get yelled at. <laughs> uh, that is a I, classic film. <laughs> it, it's a great film. There are about 45 seconds. If I could have clipped them out, it would have been a slightly better movie for my, for my young boys. I will <laughs> always go back to Wall Street. Wall Street was running when I was first in university, and I wanted to be in the stock market. And uh, the, the Greed is Good speech is maybe my favorite movie scene of all time. So uh, that, that's got to be my favorite. Nice. Two goodies. Two goodies. Very good. Well, listen, we appreciate you getting on this podcast with us. It's, it's always great to talk to you and pretty interesting topic. Uh, the interview with Brett Redfern. Did you get the last interview with the infamous Brett Redfern before he leaves trading in markets? Probably not. <laughs> what about, what about the socks, Rona? Aren't you forgetting uh, the socks? Oh yeah. You get a pair of socks, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, geez. I'm sorry. We have very special boxes and lion socks Mm -hmm. that we give to all our podcast guests that are shockingly comfortable. And uh, people say that all the time. And we'll get you outfitted with those and you'll be the talk of the town. (laughs) I much appreciate that. Doug, thank you for putting up with, uh, with Ronan. Thank you. And thank you for the STA and Doug for the partnership and for joining us on this podcast. We, we absolutely appreciate it. The the one last thing I would just like to to send a shout out to Jimmy toes and the folks at the STA, given what a tough year 2020 was, he did a phenomenal job putting together two full days of content in a fluid environment. And it wasn't just two days of people talking. It was the right people talking about the right topic. So yeah, he did a great job emceeing it remotely. I don't know how the hell he did that uh, unless he had a bottle of whiskey off zoom. His hair was gray going in and it was even grayer coming out. So yeah. <laughs> he's a good guy for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Bucks and lines over and out. Thank you. Now, over and out.
information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.